So David Page held a bomb in his arms for four hours. I don't know if you can imagine that. A bomb for four hours with no one around. He had been digging in his backyard in England and unearthed an undetonated World War I bomb, picked it up, and then all of a sudden became fearful, thinking, I don't know what to do with this. And if I set it down or if I drop it and it goes off, boy, that's going to be a terrible end to my story. He's in his backyard. There was no one around. He got to the front yard. Family was out finally got a hold of a phone somehow or another and was able to call the emergency operator to tell her what was going on. I need help. I'm holding a bomb. I I found in my backyard. And she kept telling him, sir, just relax. It's going to be okay. And he kept telling her, you're not holding a bomb. (laughs) She passed him through to his wife and to his kids. And so he had the opportunity to say goodbye in case the afternoon's events did not turn out as he had hoped. He was able to say some final words to his children, to his wife, as the emergency personnel was on their way. They arrived, the bomb disposal unit showed up. They were all decked out in their gear. They took that bomb, they took it out of David Page's hands and they laid it down on the ground in front of them. And that's when they told him that he was holding the suspension system of a French made car called a Citroen. (laughs) Four hours. And I would have loved to have been one of his close friends because he would have never heard the end of that story. I wonder, like, reading that story, I thought, what, I wonder what the conversation with his wife and with his kids was like. Thinking that, well, this could be my final words, the final things that I say to them. Because final words matter. They have power. I mean, imagine if if you found out today with your friends and family gathered around you, that you only had five more minutes until you met Jesus. And hopefully you'd be meeting Jesus. Five more minutes. What you said to your family and friends would be measured, would it not? It it would be thought out. It would be powerful. Because our final words matter. I I experienced that. Grew up in a, in a home with a biological father part of the time before my parents split and watched him live his life. Some of you have heard some of my story before. Uh, my biological father had a, a very uh, difficult relationship, dysfunctional, would probably be generous to say with his parents. His parents divorced when he was in his 20s. And as his mother, my grandmother, was leaving the house to go to start her new life, getting into a taxi. My father and his mother were having words in the front yard yelling, and he said to her, I hope I never see you again. And the next time he saw her was at her funeral. And the baggage, the weight of those final words spoken just added fuel to the fire of the dysfunction that he had in his family. Final words are powerful. About a month ago, I asked on Facebook an informal survey just to anybody that would chime in. I said, what do you think are the two most important things that Jesus said? It was Easter, so I got a lot of it is finished because Easter was on people's minds. Great words. A lot of people saying, follow me. Fantastic. I'm the light of the world. Several different things. A lot of people pointed to Matthew 28, 19 through 20 and said, I would put this as two of the most important things Jesus said because... They were measured. Because Jesus is about to ascend into heaven in Matthew 28, and he has his disciples around him to say one final thing to them. And so I want us this morning to lean into Matthew 28. So if you have your Bible, flip over there. 
if you don't have it, there are Bibles right in front of you, in the pew, should be. I want you to read along with me as we look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20. I'm going to read and we'll go back. So if you're flipping, you'll have plenty of time to look at the passage. Jesus said in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Sometimes you have people in your life that, that teach you things that you never forget. I had a youth pastor when I was growing up that anytime we would open up the Bible and we would read it, he, he said this, and it was one of these things that just stuck in my mind. He said, anytime you're reading the Bible and you see the word therefore, you need to ask this of yourself, what is the therefore, therefore? And so that's never left my mind. And in Matthew 28, 19, we, we see that. Jesus says, go, therefore. And so we stop and we pause and we go, what's the therefore, therefore? If we go back to verse 18, what we find out is Jesus uh, prefaces this final words and says to his disciples, all authority, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. So when we're reading this passage, this, this scripture that we're going to look into, Jesus' final words, they're not just important and powerful because they're Jesus' final words. That, that would be important to us. But Jesus says, they're not just my final words, words, they're authoritative words. Because all power and all authority on earth, which means every king and every kingdom does not have the authority to speak what I'm about to speak because I have more. So all authority and power on earth and in heaven. All authority in the known universe resides in me. And here's what I have to say to you before I ascend. Go and make disciples. Now when we read this in our English Bibles, we usually, or at least I do, get get caught up on the word go because it's the first word, it's a verb, and think, okay, we got to go. But there's really in this passage of Scripture, there's only one command. The command is to make disciples. That's what Jesus is commanding us to do. If you read in the Greek, the word go literally would translate as you're going or while you're going. So what Jesus is, Jesus is not necessarily saying, hey, this is a foreign missions call, even though foreign missions would fall in this category. But it's more of a, hey, in your daily life, go. And as you're going, you need to make disciples. So what Jesus would say to us, Tomorrow, when you go to work, as you go to work, be thinking, how am I making disciples here where I work? When you go home today, we intentionally think, how do I make disciples in my home as I'm going? As you drive through your neighborhood and you look at the people who live around you, we're to think intentionally, how as I'm going home to my neighborhood do I make disciples? When you go to the restaurant today for lunch, if that's what you do on your Sunday afternoon, if you go someplace regularly and you begin to get to know the people there, you ask, how as I'm going do I make disciples? So it's not so much about going someplace far away as it is going in our regular routines is what Jesus is saying. As we're going, our job is to make disciples. Now, sometimes we start thinking foreign missions, not just because of the word go, but because of the next thing Jesus says. He says, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. So when we read that, we, we immediately start thinking, okay, I, okay, do I go to Brazil? Do I go to Haiti? 
Do I go to South Africa? Where do I go? Well, we've already determined that as we go, if you go to those places, you make disciples as you go. But we need to understand who's writing this on behalf of Jesus. Matthew is recording these words that Jesus said. And Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. Now, understand the Jews, and we'll see this next week as we get into Deuteronomy 6, the Jews were a hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one type of people. That was the Shema. That was what they said over and over again to their families because they lived around people who, had, uh, who believed all kinds of other different gods, pagan worship and things like that. They were also occupied at the time by Rome. So the Romans lived amongst them. And so Matthew makes sure that, that the people that he's writing to hear Jesus' words, and he uses the word go to all nations. The Greek word is ethnos. We get the word ethnic from. It means people groups. So Matthew's making for sure that, that, that the Jews know, hey, as we're going and making disciples, as we're going to work, and as we're going home, and as we're going to the market, and we're making disciples along the way, we're to make disciples of all nations, not just our people. See, that's one of the things that I think sometimes churches struggle with. We talk about discipleship, and for a lot of us, we think discipleship and we think class. I got a discipleship class. I've got a discipleship conference I go to. And we walk into the class, and we're surrounded by people who are all believers. They're all Christians. And we think, yes, we, we are disciples. We are so, so we are Christians. We're following Jesus, which disciple means. So we're getting better at that. But what Jesus says, he says, as you're going, make disciples of all nations, which means there's some people that you might work with or some people in your neighborhood who currently might worship other gods. They might identify as a nun. More than 40% of America claims to be nun now. We have no official religious affiliation. Discipleship isn't just about our kids and our grandkids. Discipleship just isn't about me growing from here to there with Jesus. As we make disciples, we're making of all nations. So the people in our neighborhoods and the people that we work with who are currently not following Jesus, our call is to help make them disciples because they're, a, they're, they're part of the nations. Mike Bechtel tells, talks about, it's not really tells a story, but he talks about a thing called spam evangelism. And his definition of spam evangelism is a lot like what it sounds. If you get spam email, You've got an email into your inbox that's from somebody you don't know that you didn't ask for, that you're not interested in. And your email is set up to take it out of your inbox, the things that you care about, and put it into the spam email. And then you go through and you haven't subscribed. I don't want any part of that. He said spam evangelism is evangelism that takes place outside of the context of relationships. Spam evangelism is, I just, and this is not a bad thing. I just would not let this be your only thing. Spam evangelism is, I just, I just leave a track wherever I go. Spam evangelism is I do my evangelism on Facebook, on social media, and I post things so that people hear and know that I'm a believer. Where evangelism in its best form happens as you're going with the relationships with the people that you are investing in. Your neighbors and the people that you work with and the people that you're sharing life with. And he tells this illustration to give us a picture of it, an illustration that his college roommate actually did. His college roommate, to illustrate this, lives in Phoenix, Arizona went out to uh, Central Avenue in Phoenix during the lunch hour and just started walking down the street asking every woman that he saw, didn't know any of them, asking every woman he saw if she would give him a kiss. So walking down the street, would you, man, would you kiss me? He was cussed at. He was ignored. He was slapped more than one time. 
And the 98th woman that he asked agreed. And what Bechtel says, he says a lot of times the church, when we talk about evangelism, we function out of that. We function like that. But what we do is when the 98th person says yes, we celebrate. We celebrate that someone became a believer, but we, we tend to forget what happened to the first 97 people. He believes that when we do a spam evangelism, evangelism outside the context of relationships, we're more inclined to do damage because people put up emotional walls and they go, you know what? It's just another drive-by trap. You seen it before? There's a basketball game in March, walking into the arena, and there's a guy with a bullhorn and he's yelling the gospel at people. You know how many people fell and repented there on their knees and cried out to the Lord? None. Do you know how many people's hearts were hardened to the gospel because there was no relationship in that invitation? I don't know, but probably more than one. And he says, hey, think about the ladies, the first 97. How many of those ladies walked down the street the next day a little bit more leery of men walking towards them? Think about the preconceived ideas about men that they had that when they went back into the office place and another man said something that was, was totally innocent, but because of the experience she had just had on the street when a, when a stranger asked her to, to kiss him, how, how, many, how many thoughts went through their mind that, that solidified what they had already thought to be true? And so we celebrate the 98th person, but we forget that we might have actually done damage to the first 97. And so he argues for this idea of evangelism, says, hey, you need to do evangelism and make disciples of people that you're in relationship with. It's very difficult to make a disciple of somebody you don't know. You can share the gospel with them. You can sometimes see them accept Christ. But if you're not in a relationship, who follows up with the discipleship? Who helps them go from, I just began a relationship with Jesus, to now I'm a fully developed disciple who's making other disciples? It's difficult unless you have a relationship, which is why Jesus says, as you're going to work and to school, the places that you go, your routine, where you have relationships with people, make disciples. And how do we know if we're doing that well or not? Jesus says, we baptize them or... In the Greek, continually baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and keep teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. How do we know we're doing well? When that baptistry is full every Sunday. That's how we know that we're making disciples. That's how we know that we're making disciples of all people groups. That's how we know we're making disciples of the people that God has entrusted to us with relationships as we start seeing them follow Christ and follow them through baptism. And then our small groups keep growing because we keep adding people to our small group because we're going to keep teaching them. And our small groups go to big groups and we go, man, we've got to stay small so we know each other and we have to keep creating small groups. That's how we know we're doing well. We see people being baptized and being taught. But here's, here's the kicker. You already get uncomfortable if you're not uncomfortable already? Because some of you are going, are you... Are you saying that I'm going to have to talk to my neighbors? Yes, absolutely. But here, here's where it gets more uncomfortable. We tend to think, and it may not be First Baptist, but we in the Christian church tend to think that the job of discipleship falls on the pastors. After all, it's, that's, that's what we pay them for, right? And they went to seminary, and I've got, I've got a real job. They're up there. They, like, work on Sunday mornings and then maybe on a Wednesday night. they got plenty of time to make disciples. We're paying them to do that. 
Do you know, if you go to Ephesians chapter 4, what you find out is the, the role of the pastor, the pastor's job, isn't to do the work of the church, but it's to equip the church, the members, the saints, as the King James would say it. The pastor's job is to equip the saints to do the work of the church. And, and, and get this, get this picture. Because as I go to work and home and to my neighborhood, I do come across and have relationships with people who need to be discipled. People who need, I need to help make disciples of. But here's, here's the crazy thing. You realize when I go to work tomorrow, and I think you would affirm this, the vast majority of people I work with are already believers. Like you, you affirm that, right? We haven't hired a lot of pastoral staff that don't know Jesus. I mean, most of the people I work with are believers. Most of the people that I'm eating lunch with because I'm called to equip the church are believers. So as I go, my circle is my neighborhood and some of the restaurants I go to. I don't really have the work circle to go to where I'm sharing the gospel on a regular basis. So the numbers of people that go into the baptistry because of my direct influence of the people I work with is going to be small. But as a pastor, if I can equip and join our other pastors in equipping our church to go out and make disciples in where they work and, and in their homes and in their neighborhoods, you can imagine the exponential growth that would happen if we all took Jesus' mandate to, as we're going, make disciples seriously. You see how that works? We're all called to do this. So we're going to talk some like practical steps, and it's very easy. I got Lou. Lou, would you help me with my... Um, tripod. I asked Lou to help me with this because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a visual. We're going to put it up here, our campuses and Liberty Hill and our gym venue. Uh, hopefully they're going to be able to see this. Thank you, Lou. Give a hand for Lou Watson. He is better than Vanna White. And I know it might be a little bit difficult to see, but I want to give you a visual of what this looks like. Well, that's not good. Here we go. Maybe that'll say. Okay, so Imagine with me a little town called Georgetown in Williamson County. And you've got I-35 that runs north and south. You have Williams Drive. You've got Highway 29 or University Avenue. You've got Leander Road. You've got Round Rock to the south, Liberty Hill to the west, Gerald to the north, Taylor to the east. And right here, almost on the corner of I-35 and Highway 29, sits First Baptist Georgetown. But we're talking about as we go, we make disciples. So where do we go? I've said it over and over again. We go to where we live. I live down here, kind of off land of road. Some of you might live up here in Berry Creek. Some of you might live out in Liberty Hill. I'm going to move Liberty Hill closer from my map. You might live over here. Some of you live maybe out this way. And we live over in Serenada. And we've got some people that live across the street from the church. And land of road, both sides. And where do we work? Well, some people work down in Round Rock and Austin, and, and some of us work over here, and some of us work there, and, and we work here. Now, here's what we typically do. When we, we practice evangelism, we tend to go to these places, and we invite people to come with us to church, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It just can't be the only thing. But imagine this scenario. You're in your neighborhood, and you're talking to your neighbor. You had to be outside visiting, and, and they're new. And you just find out, found out they moved from California, because that's where everybody's moving from. They moved from California into your neighborhood. They've left all of their friends and family to move to Georgetown, Texas, or Liberty Hill, Round Rock, wherever you live. 
They've got a 15-year-old, and their 15-year-old's having a difficult time with the move because they've got no friends. You also found out that before the move, there was some difficulty, some things that were happening just in, in, in developing and walking through adolescence. Found out that they're about to move their aging parents from California to Georgetown as well, and they're looking for a home for them, and, and they're, they're wrestling through the finances of what that looks like to take on their, their, their family as well as making the, the new move to a job. You know, all of this information about them. And then what we do is this. We go, hey, would you come with me to church? And here, we don't, we don't think this, but here's what we're asking. Would you, who don't know Jesus, come with me to a thing that we affirm and call a worship service where we're going to worship a God that you don't know and we're going to sing some songs that you haven't heard and that you don't understand the words to and we're going to trust that when Pastor Kevin gets that microphone and he's been praying through a sermon delivered to the church at First Baptist that he's going to deliver a message that speaks right to that neighbor's heart. And God, thank you that the Holy Spirit does that often, right? But what if, what if, what if God put you in the neighborhood and gave you a bunch of cues? They've just moved, life transition. They have aging parents that are moving in with them. They have a teenager that's struggling. They're wondering about finances. And you have all of these different bridges into the gospel to share with them what Jesus has done in your life and in maybe some of the lives of some of your friends. And you have the opportunity right then and there in your neighborhood with all of the information the Lord has provided you with. And since he's called you to be a disciple maker, maybe, just maybe, God's plan was for you to lead that person to Jesus right there and begin the discipleship-making process in the front yard. And then now that they're a believer, invite them to come worship the God that they do know in a worship service. Does that make sense? So we start, we start trying to bring everybody here. And what we're talking about is as we go, the gospel starts to go out from here. And when the gospel goes out to what we're calling these outposts, because here is our central location, our outpost is where we work and where we live, you start to see that the gospel expansion gets a lot bigger than just 1333 West University Avenue. As we go, we make disciples. So here is your first homework. Here's the first thing to do is we begin to move into our intentional discipleship plan, our family plan, is one, you've got to identify where your outposts are. I mean, I've kind of preloaded you where you work, your neighborhood, if you've got other people in your home, your home, if you go to regular places to eat or shop and you begin to know some of the people, those, those are your outposts. And we need to identify them so that we can be intentional with them. And then the second thing we do after we identify our outposts is, is we start intentionally praying for the people in those outposts. We start thinking through because I know, hey, when I go to work tomorrow, God has called me to be a disciple maker at my place of work. Because you're not a teacher. You're a disciple maker who teaches. You're not a doctor. You're a disciple maker who has medical expertise. You're not a, a stay-at-home mom you're a disciple maker of children in your home. You see, that, that's what we're called to do. But we have to start intentionally thinking about where we're going and then start intentionally praying for the people there. By name, for the people you work with. By name, for the people who live around you. By name, 
for your kids and grandkids if you're not already. By name, for the waitress that you see three times a week at the place you go for breakfast with your friends. By name, for the person that tends to check you out of the grocery store on a fairly common basis. We start being intentional because we're not now just walking through life without a mission. We're intentionally loving God, loving people, and helping others do the same. That's what we're called to do, and we start doing it purposefully. So next week, when we gather together, we're going to put the discipleship plan in your hand that is going to be the intentional plan for you to start writing some things down of how do I do this. So between now and then, we've got to start thinking, where am I going? And then the second thing, who am I praying for along the way? There's a story, I love the story of David Benton. He was a teacher and for years taught at a school. And, and, and over the years, he had lots of kids that came through his classes that ended up being missionaries and pastors. And some of them realized the connection. Hey, we, we were all together in this class. And at his retirement, they went back and they, they talked to him, several of them. They said, hey, we just want you to know, I don't know if you knew this. They knew he was a believer. They said, you know how many students have come out of your class that went on to be pastors and missionaries? And he didn't. He was blown away by it. And they said, well, what, 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 do you even know what you did? He said, well, I, I didn't really do anything, but I do know this, that every day when I assigned you homework or you were taking a test for years that I was a teacher, as the class would work, I would sit at my desk and I'd pray for those, each of my students by name for years. We start intentionally praying that God would do a work in the lives of the people that are part of our as we go. And then here's the third thing. It's very simple. We make disciples. We intentionally engage people. We intentionally invite people into a conversation. We serve people so they can see who we are and who we love and that we are part of the kingdom of Jesus and that we love them and we want them to know what eternal life is like. So we, this week we identify where we're going. We start intentionally praying. We start, and part of that prayer is, God, how do I intentionally make disciples? Rosario Butterfield wrote a, a book. And in her book, she tells the story about how her family was robbed. I don't know if you've ever had that happen, someone break into your home, but uh, it's, a, it's a difficult thing. The feelings of violation that happens is something that, that people will carry with them for a while and they won't often feel safe in their home. Her home was broken into, robbed. They took the family jewelry. They, they actually beat the family dog and ransacked the house, destroyed it, turned it upside down. Rosario Butterfield's a believer. The very next day, she got in her group email to her neighborhood, and she sent an email out to her neighbors and said, hey, I wanted everybody to know that last night we were robbed, but they didn't take anything of eternal value. And we want to invite all of you to the celebration on Sunday at 3 o'clock where we're going to do hamburgers and hot dogs in our yard. And 21 neighbors showed up. Can you imagine the conversations? You were robbed yesterday or two days ago? And you're doing this? What, what did you mean when you said they took stuff, but they didn't take anything that had eternal value. What, what did that mean? You know the conversations that happened in the front yard because somebody engaged their neighbors in one of the most tragic times of their neighborhood experience? Now, I'm not hoping that you get robbed this week by any means, but you don't have to be to make a difference in your neighborhood. You could have a cookout of hamburgers and hot dogs 
and invite your neighbors and have conversation and ask some intentional questions. Maybe invite and see who'd be interested in, in starting a Bible study in your living room once or, once or twice a month to just engage the scripture and talk about things of faith. You'd be surprised at what conversations happen is just you're engaging and loving people where they tell some of the stories that's happened in their life and their and their highways for you to jump on to go straight to the gospel. All because you just said, hey, I want you to come and share life with me. Now imagine being a part of church that gets this. And we're not thinking here, but we're thinking outposts of the gospel that go to Round Rock and Liberty Hill and Gerald and, and all of our different neighborhoods in which we live and the places that we work. And as we are being intentional in making disciples, what we start seeing is a baptistry every Sunday that's filled with people who are following Christ. And we start hearing the buzz of people who are getting plugged into small groups and, they're, and they're, they are being discipled themselves. You can feel the buzz that begin to happen around this place. Now imagine while that's happening and you're taking part of that if you were taking your kids or your grandkids along for the journey with you. And that's when we move into discipleship for a family. If you've got grandkids or you've got adult kids, the primary way you disciple your kids, we'll talk hands-on stuff next week, but the primary way you disciple your kids is to say, follow me while I follow Jesus. And how do I follow Jesus? Well, the last thing that he said to us was, as you go, make disciples. And so we say, grandkids, I want you to come out. If you're, if you're going to host a block party and you're a grandparent, maybe you host a block party on the week that your grandkids are with you during the summer. You go, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a second. That's the only week I have with them. And we want to do fun stuff. Is it not fun to watch transformed lives happen all around you and to have conversations that night as you tuck your grandkids into bed? Of, Here's why we do this. Because we love our neighbors and we love God. And we want to help our neighbors love God and love their neighbors. That's how discipleship happens. Life on life as you go. That's going to be exciting. That's going to be life-changing and transforming. If you came in this morning and you walked in, maybe with a friend, maybe with a person, you're looking at the neighbor going, wait, you invited me. You were supposed to just tell me about Jesus there. I didn't have to come with you this morning, but you came. And Lord's began to do something. You go, man, I'm starting to get this. I'm starting to resonate with this. But you've never had a time in your life where you asked Jesus to come into your life. Maybe this morning is it. In a few moments, we're going to move into what we call a time of invitation, and the musicians will come back up on the stage. It'll be shortly after I pray. We're going to invite you during the time of invitation to respond to the Lord. And if you want to trust Jesus with your life, you want to start following him so that you can lead other people, you can do that in several different ways. You can pray in your seat where you're at and ask the Lord to come into your life. I'll be down front. Some of our other pastors will be down on the front rows. You can just come down, and if you'll just turn the corner and look at us and say, I prayed that prayer, we'll greet you, and we can talk about what's next. Maybe your invitation is to go this week and start thinking intentionally, where do I go? Where is my neighbors? Where is my work? Where are the places that I routinely go? How do I start intentionally praying for those people, and how do I start making disciples? Maybe your response to the invitation is to make that commitment that you're all in today.